take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14, once again in verse 53. Mark 14, 53. They have just arrested Jesus and, and now we pick up in our text today. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet about even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Lord, we're so thankful that our kids this morning got to hear how you are the creator of all the earth, that you spoke and by your word all things were made. Isaiah tells us that he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh Lord, we thank you this morning that you are here present with us today. And we pray as you speak to us that you would renew our strength in the Lord, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. And that God that we would leave this place as a people happy in the Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. So I ask you to turn to Mark uh, 14 again this morning as we had our scripture reading. And you might think, wow, Pastor Rick, we've been in Mark 14 for quite some time now. <laughs> I'll tell you it's been about a month and a half if you want to know exactly. Because there's a lot in this chapter. I mean, clear back at verse 3 where Jesus was anointed at Bethany and then uh, verse 14 or uh, verse 10 where Judas uh, betrays Jesus 
and then Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples and then foretelling Peter's denial and then in verse 32 then we have Jesus in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and then his betrayal and his rest in verse 43 and now in verse 53 we have Jesus's I guess you could call it sort of a pre-trial before the council of religious leaders also known is the Sanhedrin. But I want us to look at uh, verses 1 and 2 this morning of Mark 14 before we get into our text, just so we can sort of understand the mindset of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. Uh, Mark 14, 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the religious leaders weren't seeking the truth about Jesus in the text that we're looking at today. Their goal instead was to try to find some kind of evidence to put him to death. Here are men who are supposed to be servants of the living God who administer justice, but instead they are carrying out their own wills in the name of God and unfortunately I wish I could say this was an isolated uh, incident but there have been times throughout church history where men in the name of God have done things that are dishonoring to the Lord and I know sometimes unbelievers look at those uh, cases and those situations and they said see uh, Christianity is is not true and what they're doing is they're just taking the acts of a few wicked men and, uh, and then tying that with the name of God, which is not true. Our God is a righteous and a holy uh, and um, wonderful God. Um, and so we must never forget that. Well, Jesus spoke and, and he taught as one who had authority. There's no question about that. The, the people recognized that and they often commented about that um, regarding Jesus. But this intim intimidated the, the church leaders of that day they wanted that authority they wanted that respect in the following of the people but now here is jesus standing before the high priest in the sanhedrin now kids just so you know the high priest was sort of like the the president of the sanhedrin and he was the judge of this court that was going on and 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 so they gather uh, on this evening to in one sense sort of try Jesus it appears that they are in control that they have the one whom they hated and that they want to kill and in their minds they stand as judges over Jesus but in many ways this trial was sort of a bogus trial uh, everything about uh, what goes on in this trial is contrary to Jewish law and the law even of the Sanhedrin if you remember the Sanhedrin is made up of 70 men members and the Jews of course um, refused to uh, honor the Roman occupiers in their legal manners and so the Romans were smart enough and savvy enough to recognize this and to give the Jews some certain limited powers in matters of religion and, and even in some matters of politics mostly in religion but in capital cases like this they were never to meet at night uh, witnesses were to be warned about heresy and, and rumor. Uh, they would meet uh, as the Sanhedrin in certain parts of the temple 
to hear cases and not in the upper room of the high priest's house. And so there's definitely a conspiracy that is going on here. But as we look at this trial, I want us to notice several things. First of all, I want us to recognize the false witnesses and, and what is going on there. Three times, Mark says in verses 55 through 57, that the Sanhedrin were trying to find evidence against Jesus. Now, this was maybe, you could say this was sort of like a grand jury investigation. Uh, kids, a grand jury investigation, that's where they have a meeting to determine if there's enough evidence to have a trial. And so they were uh, meeting to see if they might have a case against Jesus. And, and like I said, in one sense, they weren't really trying him in the sense of really understanding is Jesus innocent or guilty. They were trying to find him guilty. They were trying to come up with every bit of evidence that they could to show that uh, he deserved death. And they even resorted to false testimony. And uh, even though that testimony did not agree. Look at verses 55 through 56. Now the chief priest and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. You see, Mark says that the authorities had difficulty in getting their accusations to stick. The various false testimonies conflicted with each other. They, they couldn't even get their stories straight. Now, why is that so important that they get their stories straight? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, it, it says that in order to bring a charge against someone for a crime or a sin, there must be at least two witnesses. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so it was very important for the Sanhedrin to have at least two witnesses. So even though uh, everything appears to be orchestrated here, and the reason I say that, I mean the text doesn't say that per se, but here you, you got to picture this, guys, that you had 70 men who came in the middle of the night on the night when they were celebrating the Passover, they came from various places carrying torches most likely to come to the high priest's house that they could have a meeting. That had to be orchestrated to a certain degree. These 70 men just didn't happen to be in one location at one time. So even though everything was orchestrated, and, and most likely there was bribery, it doesn't say in the text that they paid these witnesses to testify against Jesus, but we do know that the, the religious leaders did pay Judas to betray Jesus, so there, there, there most likely is corruption here. They, even th with all of that, they couldn't get two witnesses to agree. The only charge they carried any kind of weight was the one that Jesus had, uh, that they made about Jesus destroying the temple. And we read in verse 58, we, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said something similar to that, but Jesus did not say that exactly. Jesus did say that the temple would be destroyed, which would happen at the hand of the Romans. The physical temple itself that was made with hands would be destroyed 
by the Romans, but most likely they're referring to John 2.19, where Jesus answered them, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he's not referring to the temple that was made with hands or not made with hands. He's, he's referring to his death and his resurrection. But even in this testimony, uh, even though it's somewhat close, but not really close at all, it says in verse 59, even about this testimony, they did not agree. These witnesses bore false witness. They, they lied. They, they broke the ninth commandment uh, of, of God. They twisted Jesus' words and then used their perverted lies against Jesus. And while the religious leaders had no interest in the truth, they, they wanted to appear that they were obeying Deuteronomy 19.15. So they were trying to get at least two witnesses who could lie. But, but they could not find two men to lie in the same way and at the same time about Jesus. That's just sad, I'll just tell you, right? That's just sad. They can't even orchestrate a lie. Now, notice Jesus' response. In verse 60 and 61. Notice that Jesus is silent. We read, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this? Or what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. You see, Jesus was fulfilling the words of Isaiah 53, 7 that said he was oppressed and he was afflicted. We need to understand here that Jesus did go, go through much suffering. Not only the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, but even here to be falsely accused. And to be falsely accused so poorly. I mean, think about the times in your life where someone has accused you of something that you did not do. Uh, and, and just how that riled the sense of justice in you. How much more the perfect Son of God being accused of, of sin and accusations. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And why? Why would he open his mouth? There, there was no point in trying to convince this crowd. This, it was really a mockery of a, of a trial. They'd already made up their mind. And so Jesus didn't shout out his defense. He was silent. He was the silent, suffering servant that we read in Isaiah. C.S. Lewis once said, uh, this isn't a direct quote, but sort of the gist. He said, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. But that's, that's how men would view God. And even early on in our country, even people who were not believers had enough respect of God and the church that uh, there was a sense of a, a bit of awe. I'm not saying every person was like that. But the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. But the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge and God is the dock or he, God is on trial. And don't we see that in our culture today? You know, people are saying, you know, all kinds of things. Well, I could never serve a God that would do this, or I could never serve a God that would allow suffering. As if us as human beings, even though we are frail, and all it takes is uh, a, a one circumstance, one catastrophe in our life 
to show us the weakness, whether it's a physical ailment, whether it's losing money in the stock market and being wiped out and, and bankrupt, whatever it may be, we see the frailty of our lives and yet we stand up so arrogant as if we are so much greater than God and He should answer to us. But that's what these religious leaders were doing. They were putting Christ on trial here. And I just want to say, it, it should never surprise true Christians if they are slandered and misrepresented in this world. We must not expect to fare better than our Lord Jesus Christ. Should we, brothers and sisters? If He suffered, if He was falsely accused, if He was ridiculed, if He was physically beaten, then should it not make, should it not stand the reason that we would experience the same kind of things? And we see that in our brothers and sisters around the world. And we pray for them as they go through such suffering. We should instead look forward to the times of suffering that we will have as a matter of course and see it as it is, as part of the cross which we must bear as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Satan's choicest weapons when it comes to Christians. When Satan cannot deter men from serving Christ, he labors to harass them and make Christ's service uncomfortable for them in hopes that they would deny their Lord. But let us bear it patiently and not count it as a strange thing whenever we suffer in the name of Christ. You see, the words of the Lord Jesus should often come to our mind. Words like Luke 26, or excuse me, Luke 6, 26, where Jesus says, Woe to you when all people seek well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You see, we ought not to be people pleasers. We ought not to be people that are looking to be in, in good favor with, with those in, in our our culture. We should not intentionally seek to offend them, but we should not be like chameleons changing uh, with every season so that we could be in good favor. And I, I have to be honest with you, um, I don't know many of us in this room who have not grown up in a time in which uh, we have all grown up in a time in which the church has had great favor. The, the church is often, up to this point in time, has been fairly respected uh, by America, has been seen as a positive thing, but in recent years, that's beginning to change. And, and that's new for us as believers. And so I think this word is very apropos for us today to, to, to take to heart that as we see public opinion uh, possibly changing towards us in the future that we not be taken by surprise that we may not be uh, misled by that I know and I, I forgive me I use this illustration a hundred times I know that but it's just like the time when my son and I were in Bangladesh and we were attacked by 200 Muslims students and um, and in that attack I remember thinking why are they so mad at me I don't understand this. 
Well, it wasn't until later as I was thinking about that that I realized they weren't mad at me. They were mad at Christ. And, and so the suffering just took me by surprise. And the suffering we went through was very minor compared to what Christians all around the world go through. But still, just in that attack, it just, that physical attack, it just, it just took me off guard. And I just want us as, as God's children not to be surprised when the day of suffering comes. And so let us bear patiently. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They do that, and they do so wrongly because you're not guilty of those things. But they do so on account of Christ. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, wow, how encouraging these words must have been for the believers who read Mark's gospel for the first time. Those New Testament Christians in Rome who were meeting not in a shopping center like Kirk of the Plains on Sunday morning, but they were meeting under the city streets in the catacomb. Kids, that's where the dead bodies were. It's like the graveyard. They were in the catacombs surrounded by dead bodies because they could meet there and they could worship Jesus without harm of being arrested and possibly even put to death. And imagine the comfort that they had as, they, as those who were suffering for the sake of Christ to know that they weren't alone, that their master suffered as well. And, and when these lies were told against him, when he was reviled, when he was abused, Jesus didn't feel the need to defend himself. Um, I like the way the words that Peter speaks about Christ and his suffering. 1 Peter 2, 23, it says, When he, that is Jesus, was reviled or abused, he, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. You hear that? Continued entrusting himself. That's like an ongoing process that he did over and over and over. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus put himself in the hands of the Father who he knew is the judge. Brothers and sisters, are, are you ready to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly? Are you ready to suffer and to lose everything simply because you are a follower of Christ? So we have the false witnesses, but we also have a faithful witness too as well. Caiaphas uh, was at his wit's end. He had no evidence uh, against Jesus, at least nothing that would stick. His witnesses couldn't even get their act together. So he turns to Jesus and he asks him a question. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says Caiaphas put Jesus under oath by the living God in Matthew 26, 63, when he says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the way Mark puts it is, he goes, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That, that word blessed there is a reference to God. It's a, it's a way to be referring to God but without using the name of God. And uh, Caiaphas was asking Jesus really two questions here. It wasn't the same question. One, he was saying, are you the Messiah? And second of all, he was saying, are you God? And Jesus, you know, 
as before, didn't have to answer, but he now chooses to answer. Jesus knows that this question is not about false accusations and lies, but about the character of who he is as God. And so Jesus says in verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus' words were words of confession, of saying, this is who I am. But they were also a terrible warning to the men in whom he was speaking. Because he was making an allusion to three Old Testament passages that really dealt with who he was as the coming judge. First, Isaiah 52.8. Isaiah 52.8 says, When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. They, they will see the Lord, and Christ will return again. And then uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see the, the royal enthronement of Christ here in this psalm. And, and that's who Christ is, is the king, even as he stands before these judges. But turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, which is the third text that this makes reference to. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see four beasts, and we're not going to take the time to talk about these four beasts today, uh, but suffice it to say that they were opposed to God, or excuse me, opposed to God's people, and they were a threat. And over against these four beasts is God himself, who's described as the Ancient of Days. And God is bringing justice and wrath upon these beasts. So look, if you would, at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 where Daniel describes what he sees in his vision. This is what he says. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were, were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court sat in judgment and the books were open now wow isn't that an incredible picture of, of the glory and the greatness of who our God is we'll skip down to verse 13 he says I saw in the vision in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. Now do you see the rich imagery that Daniel presents here? Uh, when, when we hear Jesus referencing himself as the son of man in verse 62 here in our passage in mark this is the imagery that should come to mind it doesn't mean that he's just a man we're we're thinking of him in this way to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is Jesus 
as the Son of Man who has received glory and dominion and power from the Ancient of Days or from God Himself. And, and Jesus is saying to these men who thought that they were in charge, this is who I am. You think you're judging me? But I am the Son of Man who will one day judge you. Now these are terrible words. And yet these religious men didn't believe it. Now that doesn't make it any less true, but they didn't believe it. I mean, you know, it might be like you. You may have had an experience where you have shared the gospel with a friend. And that person looks at you square in the eyes and they say, yeah, but I don't believe the Bible. And you're like, so what? I mean, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful towards anybody that says that, but that sort of reminds me of a little kid who stands there and says, you can't see me, I'm hiding. And you're like, really? Your finger's like this wide. And you're like this wide. Of course I can see you. And so for someone to say... I don't believe that it makes it no less true nonetheless and so we see the faithful witness in Christ and then we see finally the final condemnation we see that Christ is condemned by the words he spoke the high priest Caiaphas it says here tore his clothes why do we need any more witnesses he asked and then he says in verse 64 you have heard this his blasphemy what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. You see, to them, it was blasphemy, so they condemned Jesus to death. But the reality is it's only blasphemy if he's not truly God. Of course, Jesus is. But the council didn't care. They got what they wanted in verse 1, to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, he's not put to death yet. But they now have the evidence in, in their minds to seek to put him on trial before Pilate. So then some began to spit on him, which was, according to the Old Testament, one of the worst insults, and they blindfolded him, and they struck him with their fist, which you might look at and go, really? I, I just, I, I don't understand that. But, but the penalty for blasphemy was to stone someone. So they were not out of line. They were real, merely carrying out their righteous indignation because legally, according to Roman law, they could not put Jesus to death. But honestly, I'll just be very honest with you today, I don't think that's what stopped them from putting Jesus to death just because they were told they couldn't do it. And, and the reason I say that, if you, if you turn over to Acts chapter 6, in Acts 6, Stephen is arrested and he's taken before the Sanhedrin, the same group of men. Verse 12, we see that happening. And then in Acts 7, we see this long speech where Stephen testifies, sort of goes through all of, of Old Testament history to talk about the Messiah and to talk of and testifies about Jesus. And then in that speech, in verse 56, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And when he says that, Dr. Luke records what happens next. And he says in verse 
757. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. You see, they had no more right to kill Stephen than they had to kill Jesus. And yet they stoned Stephen because he spoke blasphemy. As one commentator put it, he goes, as the Sanhedrin thought about how the, the people might respond to Jesus' death, it certainly made it politically wiser for them to use the Roman power if possible. In other words, why should they put him to death and be out of favor with the people when they could use the Roman system to put Christ to death? And so they take him, and as we'll see, they'll take him to Pilate to be tried. And so they beat Jesus, and they said, prophesy. And, and while this, these uh, religious leaders were saying that, most likely in a mocking way, what they didn't understand is Jesus had already prophesied that this would happen. In Mark chapter 10, verse 33, Mark 10, 33, uh, we read Jesus saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And Jesus didn't just say that in chapter 10. He also said it in chapter 9. And he also said it in chapter 8. And so Jesus had prophesied that this would happen. And it says that the guards then, of course, joined in in the whooping. And they started beating on Jesus as well. Once again, we see prophecy fulfilled about the Messiah from the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard wow that had to be painful I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting you see Jesus endured the persecution and the condemnation of these men these men who were sitting in judgment as leaders of the Jews they bring this condemnation that will result in Christ's death but the whole time while Christ is submitting to this suffering and eventual death, He is the true judge of all mankind. Jesus will have the last word. Every person who has ever been born, ever has been, is, or will be born, will stand before Him one day to be judged. Now think again about Mark's audience, his original audience. As they're reading this letter that, that he has written to them, Think not only of the, the comfort that they received to know that their master has suffered. And so their suffering now makes sense that they should expect to suffer. But more than that, they understood that their master is also the judge of all mankind. That every wrong that has been done, every Christian that has suffered for their faith will be comforted. Even every atrocity done in the name of God and religion but really was nothing more than the will of man will one day be set right that, that these believers could believe that the words that were spoken about Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23 is true of them as well that when he was reviled when they were reviled, abused 
He did not revile in return. They don't have to revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so they can do the same. That they can entrust continually. We, brothers and sisters, can continually entrust ourselves to the one who has suffered and will judge justly. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you this morning, do not lose heart in following Him. The culture, like I said, of our country is posturing itself against the church and specifically God. And one day we will all suffer for Jesus. You will be falsely accused. It's not if, but it's when. And most likely you will be persecuted. And the question is, will you stand? Will you continue to entrust yourself to Him who judges justly, to Jesus, the Son of Man? If you're here today or you're watching via the live stream and, and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see in this account the lines are clearly drawn here between those who follow Christ and those who are against Him. For the most part, we see those who are against Him. And the question is, is where do you stand today? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Have you recognized Him as Lord and Savior? Have you acknowledged that He is the judge before whom you will stand one day? And if you come to that realization and you look at the sin of your life and the offenses that you have done against God, there is no hope for you in and of yourself. Nothing you can do. And so what you must do this morning is to cry out to Him in mercy. If you have not done that, I invite you to come to Jesus today. Come to the one who did pay the penalty for your sin to satisfy God's righteous judgment on you for all the sins you have committed against God. You see, so many religions tell you what you need to do in order to be right with God. But Christianity is different in the sense that it tells you what needs to be done has already been done. And it's not by you, but it's by Jesus Christ. God did what was necessary for you to be forgiven and accepted by God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we could hear your word this morning. It, it's, it's not a maybe a message that we want to hear that suffering is inevitable and in some ways maybe even outright persecution against your church in America. Oh, but God, how glorious it is to know that there is hope even in the midst of such difficult difficulties that you are a savior you are the judge who has suffered 
and you know exactly where we are and we can entrust ourselves to you and you will sustain us to the end. So Lord, I, I pray for us as a congregation that you would help change our mindset from the sense of thinking that people have to like us and that it's a church, you know, we're just shocked when people are, are angry at us. Let us understand that, God, this is not a reaction against us. This is a reaction against you. And let us count ourselves blessed that we are your children and that we might be counted worthy to suffer as you suffer. So help us, Lord. Strengthen your church. Prepare <coughs> us, Lord, for the days that are yet to come. But Father, we also pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering even now. And we pray that you would sustain them and comfort them as some have gone on to glory at the hands of their persecutors. Be with their families and strengthen them. Oh Lord, we pray for those that might be here today who, are, who have stood in judgment of you saying, I'm not going to do this with God. I'm not going to believe this or... And I pray, God, that you might grant them mercy and grace to open their hearts to see their sin and their arrogance and to bow their knee before you and to come to faith in you. Oh, Lord, even though they're not worthy to see that you are a wonderful and gracious God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.